This morning's passage, I think, is not only going to show us what's going to happen in the sky by and by, but it's also going to show us what it means to be on earth and experience that by and by, even now. This brings us to the end of our third part series that developed after my sweet daughter Amanda asked me why religion was important and why we needed to go to church. She already knew the answer. I think she was just testing me to make sure I did. The first two segments came the previous two weeks. Today brings us to the last, beginning in Matthew's Gospel, verses 13 through 22 in chapter 19. Let us pray. O oh God, be for us the light in our darkness, be for us the word that we hear. O oh Christ, be for us the way that we live. In Christ's name, amen. Hear now this word. One day, children were brought to Jesus in the hope that he would lay hands on them and pray over them. The disciples shooed them off. But Jesus intervened, let the children alone. Don't prevent them from coming to me. God's kingdom is made up of people like these. After laying hands on them, he left. Matthew included this little story right before the one that I will read now about a smart, rich, young man for a purpose, to set up the dichotomy between the children and the adult. So hear this. Another day, a man stopped Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you question me about what's good? God is the one who is good. If you want to enter the life of God, just do what he tells you. The man asked, what in particular? And Jesus, I think, had compassion on him and sort of smiled, says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. You know the commandments. And the young man said, I've done all that. What's left? Jesus says, well, if you want to give it all you've got, Jesus said, go sell all your possessions, give everything to the poor. All your wealth then will be in heaven. Then come and follow me. That was the last thing the young man expected to hear. And so crestfallen, he walked away. He was holding on tight to a lot of things, and he couldn't bear to let it go. As he watched him go, Jesus told his disciples, Do you have any idea how difficult it is for the rich to enter God's kingdom? Let me tell you, it's easier to gallop a camel through a needle's eye than for the rich to enter God's kingdom. The disciples were staggered. Then who has any chance at all, they asked. Jesus looked hard at them and said, no chance at all if you think you can pull it off yourself. Every chance in the world 
if you trust God to do it. This is the word of the Lord. I know a man in Atlanta, he's probably, I don't know, mid-80s now, who has not moved much since he graduated from college. Same church, same seat in the same pew, always drives a Chevy, votes the same party, same house for 60 years, same breakfast every morning, Cheerios, no fruit. Never changed his mind, never said he was sorry, just sits in the same old tattered chair and watches football on Saturdays and the rest of the time, 24-hour news to confirm what he already thinks or knows to be true. Doesn't really go much anywhere, never gets out of his comfort zone, doesn't seem to be looking for anything other than to nap through life. The opposite is true for this morning's young, rich person, rich young man. He's on the move, and what he's trying to find on the move is the answer to the deeper questions of life, the meaning of life, the point of life. And so he goes to Jesus, and he comes to him and says, Jesus, I'm earnestly seeking an answer to the meaning and purpose of life, and, and, and I know it says, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. But Jesus, what can I do to know that and find God's kingdom on earth? Matthew says he came up to him, but Mark, who wrote the first gospel, said he ran to Jesus and knelt before him. Something no one of power or wealth would ever do. They don't run, people run to them. You don't kneel, people kneel to them. But he runs and kneels to Jesus. And it was an act of vulnerability, for sure, and humility. Double shot of it. Risking his reputation and status, he pleads with Jesus, what good thing must I do to find eternal life? Knowing the game the man plays without knowing he's playing it, Jesus says, why do you question me about what's good? God is the one who is good. If you want to enter the life of God, just do what he tells you. Keep his commandments. I've done it, he says. You just see Jesus going, yeah. Which ones, he asks. And he gives them the six relationships. Those that say, do not murder, do not bear false witness. All of that about human connections. Don't commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. And the one that's not even a Ten Commandment, but be the, the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, I've done all that. Loving him enough to take him seriously, while seeing through his need to keep score, Jesus says, okay, if, if that's the game you're playing, then here's what you have to do. You've got to give up every single thing you have. All you've got, go sell it, give it to the poor, then come follow me. And he knew what the man would do. 
He knew the outcome because he knew the man's need to keep score in order to grade himself against everybody else. He also knew the man would walk because he had graded things greater than was their true worth. You want to find the kingdom of God, Jesus says? Get rid of it. You can just hear the man saying, uh, is there a second option? Not for this man, apparently. Not for any of us. If we buy into scorekeeping as the way to find God's kingdom. It was the last thing the young man expected to hear. He was crestfallen. He stood up and walked away, holding on tight to all the stuff. And it was the last thing his disciples expected to hear because it was thought back then that if you were successful financially or with power and you kept the commandments, then you were certainly blessed by God. Do you have any idea how difficult it is for those who think they have it, they know it, to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for the bulldogs to win a third straight championship, Jesus says. No, sorry, for a camel to gallop through an eye of a needle than for the rich to find the kingdom of God. Jesus looked hard at his disciples and then says to them the good news in a nutshell. No chance at all to get this, he says to them. No chance at all if you think you have to pull it off by yourself. But every chance in the world if you give yourself up to it and trust it. The NIV Bible says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is possible, but with God all things are possible. So I guess what Jesus is saying is finding the kingdom of God is not about what we do, how much we can earn or win, how well we can keep the commandments, but whether or not we can, like children, come to trust God. And the only way to do that is with a humble and vulnerable heart. Who knows what happened to that young man? I can't help believe that he kept searching for the kingdom of God, even though he had walked away at that point, looking for God's kingdom, eternal life. And when he grew old enough, he, he maybe started asking himself deeper questions about maybe I wasn't so right after all. Uh, maybe I was on the wrong path. Maybe he changed his life. Maybe he changed his politics. Maybe he changed the way he's always comparing himself with others. Maybe he changed his sense of identity. Maybe he was the one, it turns out, who gave his tomb for Jesus to be buried in. It is to these people, not just young, men and women, I want to speak this morning, but especially to the generation known as millennials, my daughters, wondering why we need religion when all they see is a broken, broken community that calls themselves Christian. They have sat back and watched their parents' churches decay into 
cesspools of contempt. So her generation, who have worked so hard in school and life trying to get it right, trying to be good and successful in a chaotic culture, struggling with meaning and per a culture that has become deeply alienated, angry, and, and contemptuous. The, their generation sees this everywhere, and especially from us. As millennials see it, religion is part of the problem. The data proves in 1994, 8% of those under 40 said that they were not religiously connected. They did not even believe in God, 8%. Now, it's three times that, 24%. There are plenty of reasons. Dual-income families, both parents working or single parents, more of them. No time to go to church. Now there's sports, practice, and games on Sundays. The two largest denominations in the country, Catholic and Southern Baptist, have been racked with one scandal after another. Mainline churches like Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Lutherans, Methodists, continue to shrink as we move toward being what some call over-woke on issues like justice and politics. While independent evangelical churches on the other side of the aisle align themselves more and more with the MAGA movement. We can't forget those prosperity churches who stand up and say, if we just give 10% of our income, we're going to get 40% back. If we give ourselves over to God, we're going to find all of the blessings coming to us. But when they grow older, like 30 or 35 or 40, and they start having life's problems, and they, they may lose a parent or they may lose a child or they may not have children when they want to, their marriage may not be working so well. And then they're asking themselves, what is it for this prosperity gospel it seems to have gone up in smoke. If Jesus doesn't save us from suffering, what good is he? There's 9-11, which gives plenty of evidence convicting religion as the problem, breeding fanaticism in the name of Allah, Yahweh, Brahman, or Jesus. Yet all of that together doesn't come close to what many sociologists are saying is the real reason no, it's not the transfer portal or conference shakeup in college sports. It is social media. Apple, Google, Facebook, and Twitter have become our source of meaning. Idols promising to bring salvation while giving us information, fake or not, instant communication, and perfect platforms for us to vomit our distorted darkness and worldview as claims of truth, even though it only exists in the, by, in the eye of the beholder. It's fed by politicians, conspiracy theorists, and misinformation poured out through social media by Russian or Chinese bots or ill-intended political action committees. Add to that 24-hour news, which happened to have just started around 1994. Hmm. And what we have is just another drug that feeds our addictions to hate our enemy rather than love them.
and it leads to name-calling, slander, and contempt. And I'm not kidding, and you know it. And we call it news. And the result? Alienation, loss of social connections, loss of community, rampant individualism, anger, disgust, and violence toward those we don't agree with. Name-calling, my Lord. Decrease in democratic governments and increase in nationalistic, autocratic, mostly militant male alpha leaders in Russia, China, India, Turkey, Hungary, Poland, South America, and the United States. And whether it's woke righteousness or MAGA righteousness, it's motivated by the same dark evil, the narcissism of our righteousness and hubris. The text Philip read today from Philippians said, as much as needs to be said, that God in Jesus Christ did not count what? Power as something to be had, but humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. And we are called clearly in that passage as a church to do it like Jesus did. Arthur Brooks, the past president of the American Enterprise Institute, a well-respected conservative think tank, now he's with Harvard, recognized that we were in for a political train wreck in 2014 when he visited New Hampshire before the 2016 election. There were 700 conservative activists in the audience and he was the only non-candidate. After hearing all of them diss and hiss their liberal opponents, and he could have heard the same thing at the liberal meetings, he stood up and said, I know that the things I am saying might not be sympathetic to those of you in the audience, but I want you to remember that those people who are not here, the political progressives, are not stupid, and they are not evil. They're just Americans who don't agree with us on public policy. Brooks said, I knew it wasn't going to be an applause line. But there was an applause line that followed when a lady stood up and said, I think they are stupid and evil, followed by a standing ovation. At that point, Brooks said he had an epiphany, knowing that what makes our country great is the freedom to disagree without demonizing each other, he decided to write a book called Love Your Enemy. Four years ago, it's a great book. It's a commandment in most major religions. And he wrote it for those of us who believe we are righteous. And those who don't agree with us are not. What's weird is that in a recent poll, 93% of the population hates what we have become. And what we have become, Brooks says, is a culture of contempt. 93% of us hate it, yet the vast majority of us continue to feed it. Why, he asked, because we have become addicted to it, to this like-minded political rhetoric and racial contempt for those unlike us. And every minute we listen to the radio, 
or watch social media or 24-hour news. It's another dopamine hit feeding our addiction. And it makes us feel that much more righteous. I began this three-part series three weeks ago trying to make a case for the church to my young daughter and friends and why we need it. Yes, the world and all of it is sacred. Yes, all music is a gift. Yes, we need sacred time and space. Yes, we need a church, a church that is the body of Christ coming together, even though we do not agree on all things, working through reconciliation and forgiveness and confession. And as they watch us, they keep wondering why it matters. If that's how we end up, not doing it. To her generation and all generations, all we can say is, don't do what we have done. For the church really being the church is willing to admit that we are no holier than anyone else. And what makes us different is that we're willing to work together in community and willing to admit how unholy we are. Can you imagine being a community of faith that admits that? Don't we do it every Sunday? Call the confession of faith? The great British writer and theologian G.K. Chesterton wrote perhaps the greatest, shortest essay in history. The London Times asked various essays, uh, writers for essays on the topic, what's wrong with the world? And Chesterton replied, dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> this is the beginning confession of what it takes for us to be a community of Jesus Christ together in this world. We are called to practice loving each other. The rich man claimed he could do it. I don't know. But we're called to practice it and practice it and practice it because there is so much influence out there in the world and in here too that is trying to convince us that the only way to get ahead is by stomping your enemy flat. Did Jesus say that? I don't think so. When we are the church being the church, it calls us out for doing it, like Jesus with the rich man. It calls us out on our John Wayne cowboy illusions and that I am the captain of my fate, the master of my soul. I once, I once did a Civitan optimist uh, uh, deal where they asked eighth graders to give a speech and I was one of the judges. And there were nine eighth graders and six of them used that poem in Invictus. I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. And it was written by a drunk on his back looking up at a bar sign as a joke. But now it's our motto. And how's that working for you? Jesus understood that the rich man did not understand that we cannot earn or buy or find our own way into righteousness 
it is impossible for us, it must be given to us, it's called imputed righteousness that comes to us from a gracious God that forgives our sins and deceits and forgives us when we fall and embraces us when we're scared and loves us when we think we do not deserve it. And we are called to do that to each other. And when we do it, we are being the body of Christ. And I have to say, if you're hearing this as, as me trying to lecture you, this church practices that about as well as any church I know. I have to say it. You do. And I am very, very grateful for it. But it doesn't stop there. It only stops, it doesn't stop just what we do to each other and for each other. It stops in the world, where we're working and where we're playing and who we're fraternizing with. It, it begins there. I love that hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Ours. But it gives me a little bit of a, I don't know, because isn't it true that blessed assurance, we are his? Or, I don't know, maybe at least blessed assurance, Jesus is not mine, but as I said, ours. Why do we need a church? Because nowhere else teaches us the value of forgiveness and confession and reconciliation in this world built on the life of Christ, that we cannot do it our own way, that we need others in relationship who do not agree with us. By the way, my tombstone, I hope, will say when I die, I wish I knew then how much I don't know now. The older I get, the less I know. So I have this vision for millennials that, that you forgive us, you forgive us, and that you start a whole new Jesus revolution in your homes and in your workplaces. Start practicing confession, forgiveness, humility, righteousness. Not only with those who are your friends, but those who you think might be your enemies. Start that movement. Please show us the way. It only takes 18% of any collective organization to change the culture if the 18% change at the top. There's certainly plenty of 18% at the bottom or more making sure it doesn't change or just gets worse. But the 18% at the top, how cool it would be if these upcoming young leaders would put down these tools of contempt their burdens of despair, their iPhones and computers, and start connecting to people like Jesus did. Show us the way, how amazing it can be to be one together in the body of Christ. I know it's a lot to ask, but hey, Jesus said what's impossible for us is possible for God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.